Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 41, the FBI, 1917 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hoke. For most Americans, the FBI represents a professional law enforcement agency populated by respected civil servants fighting against crime and protecting the homeland against terrorist attack. Over the past 30 years, the FBI has been an accepted part of American government. Yet, since the 2016 election, and for the first time since the 1970s, the FBI and its relation with our democratic institutions and its role in American society has become controversial. However, if one examines the origins of the FBI and its early history, it is no stranger to controversy. The FBI is both a law enforcement agency and a domestic intelligence service. For a free society to function, it must have both security and liberty, but these two forces are at times in conflict. America lacked a secret police force like the Soviet KGB, but the FBI, given its powers and actions, at times came close to resemble it. The FBI has broken the law and violated the civil liberties of Americans. It has persecuted immigrants, African Americans, homosexuals, and those with leftist political beliefs. On the other hand, the FBI confronted real challenges to American society, such as domestic terrorism, organized crime, and the very real threat that Soviet espionage presented to the country. The FBI story, like truth in general, is more complicated than often we would like. This is not the story of heroic special agents protecting America from gangsters and Soviet spies, nor is it the story of the American Gestapo. The story of the FBI is how democracy struggled to create a federal law enforcement agency to meet the legal and intelligence challenges of the modern world. When the nation was founded, there was no Justice Department, nor federal policing organizations. Law enforcement, by and large, was a local issue for much of America's early history. Until the late 19th century, the primary role of the federal government was to promote foreign commerce, encourage economic growth, defend the states from foreign invasion and Indian attacks, and negotiate the purchase of new lands, primarily Florida and lands west of the Mississippi. The president commanded the army in times of war and negotiated treaties, whereas Congress held the power to declare war and ratify treaties ensuring the protection and pursuit of American interests and safeguarding markets for American goods and the purchase of adjoining territories. This relationship between the states and the federal government changed with the American Civil War and the industrialization of the United States in the second half of the 19th century. The creation of the Justice Department in 1870 and the Bureau of Investigations in 1908 was the byproduct of a rejection of states' rights and the growth of the federal government as a result of the American Civil War. In 1861, southern states attempted to leave the Union under the banner of states' rights to ensure their, the continued practice of slavery and the racist social system that upheld the institution of slavery. The federal government decisively won this conflict, curbing the power of the states' rights 
while enhancing the power of the federal government and ending the institution of formal slavery. Nevertheless, racism and racial inequality continue to exist in America. After the war, the U.S. government established the Justice Department in an attempt to reform the South in what became known as Reconstruction. The Justice Department attempted to protect the rights of the liberated slaves. Despite the Union victory in the war, many Southerners slipped into the woods and swamps of the South and fought an insurgency against Northern occupation and the physical and political emancipation of black Americans. In 2003-2004, if you recall, the coalition forces faced a similar situation in Iraq with an insurgency composed of former Iraqi Sunni soldiers who sought to unseat the coalition provisional government and the political emancipation of the Shiites and Kurds. One of these southern insurgencies movements which adopted terrorist tactics was the Ku Klux Klan or the KKK. The KKK murdered blacks across the south, dressing in white robes and attacking people at night. Hanging was the calling card of their movement, and innocent blacks were lynched across the South. The U.S. Army tried in vain to confront the KKK, but unlike the Confederate Army, they would escape into the woods. They wore no uniforms during the day and blended into the general population. An investigation and an intelligence approach would be necessary to confront the issue, and in 1871, the Justice Department borrowed a few Secret Service agents from the Treasury Department with the mission of infiltrating and destroying the KKK. Hence the term special agent, which has stuck with the FBI ever since. The special agents worked with local African Americans to get a better understanding of terrain and to finger Klan leaders. The Klan began to panic, especially as members flipped, and by 1872, the Justice Department was making real progress on rooting out the Klan. Nevertheless, by this time, the southern states had been reaccepted back into Congress, and southern politicians called for an end to Reconstruction and a restoration of local law enforcement. By the 1880s, Jim Crow and segregation had been instituted in the South, and the federal government had abandoned the protection of African-American civil liberties to focus on westward expansion and economic development. The Justice Department had no standing force of agents and would occasionally borrow agents from the Treasury Department and hire private detectives from the Pinkerton Company. But hiring Pinkerton agents proved to be unpopular and had to be discontinued. Industrialization also fundamentally changed the nation. The railroad and steamship fundamentally changed the transportation system of the nation as they crossed state lines, speeding up the movement of peoples throughout the nation. Steamships also expanded the rate of immigration from Europe as millions of new immigrants arrived from places like Britain, Ireland, and Germany. The telegraph as well sped up communications between towns and cities. Now messages could be sent in a matter of moments from Washington to San Francisco versus the 10 days of the Pony Express. Large corporations also came to dominate the American economic and political landscape, like Vanderbilt's New York Central Railroad, or later companies like Standard Oil or Westinghouse. Powerful countercurrents also pushed back on global capitalism, or what some have called the first age of globalization. Revolutionary movements such as communism, anarchism, and extreme nationalism expanded throughout Europe and made inroads in America. In 1881, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated. In 1894, the president of France was assassinated. In 1897, the prime minister of Spain was assassinated, as was the empress of Austria in 1898, the king of Italy in 1900, and President William McKinley in 1901. The new young president, Teddy Roosevelt, called for new laws to bar revolutionaries and subversives from living in the United States. Yet Roosevelt also sought to rein in the excesses of capitalism. 
With the breakdown of the nation's old geographical barriers and the rise of the progressive error, Congress enacted laws regulating business and restricting immigration. Yet Roosevelt lacked a federal law enforcement agency to fight crime in the United States on a national level. He had no way to hunt down and arrest radical anarchists or fight against the plutocrats that plundered federal lands for lumber, some of which were national parks. Corporate criminals paid bribes to politicians to protect them from local authorities and federal prosecution. In 1905, the Justice Department, borrowing agents from the Secret Service, had convicted a senator and a congressman from Oregon for pillaging the forest of the Cascade Range. The senator died while his case was on appeal, and the congressman's conviction was overturned on grounds that the government had tampered with witnesses. Congress also, in response to the Secret Service's investigations, cut its funds. Roosevelt was enraged and decided that the Justice Department needed its own permanent agents. Roosevelt wanted an intelligence and law enforcement group that would report to him and the Attorney General, Charles J. Bonaparte, the great-grandnephew of Emperor Napoleon I of France and the grandson of the King of Westphalia. He was the descendant of Napoleon's younger brother, Jerome I. When Bonaparte asked Congress for funds to establish a small police force, they emphatically said no and banned him from spending any money on such a force. It feared the president creating a secret police force. More than likely, they also feared the Justice Department's uh, fight against corruption. Bonaparte didn't give up, though. He waited for Congress to leave for a recess at the end of June. He then used money from the Justice Department's funds to hire eight veteran Secret Service agents as full-time agents for the new Bureau of Investigations. When the Bureau was established in 1908, they had 35 agents. At various times after 1908, Congress enacted laws expanding the definition of interstate commerce crimes, a power granted the federal government in the Constitution, thus increasing the power and authority of the Bureau. Technological and economic forces fueled the Bureau's growth as well. The spread of the automobile at the beginning of the 20th century sped up the movement of people and merchandise over state lines. Meanwhile, immigration exploded after the 1880s with immigration from Italy, Greece, Eastern Europe, and Scandinavia. Internally as well, millions of rural Americans left their towns and farms for the opportunity and jobs of the big cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Buffalo. The early 20th century also saw the growth of the progressive movement, which sought to fight the power of the corrupt political machines like Tammany Hall and break up the big corporations like Standard Oil. These concerns also spread to social issues such as uh, combating alcoholism, women's suffrage, and prostitution. Red light districts across America had exploded, with the influx of young women from Europe and the countryside into the major cities. Economic downturns and lack of employment opportunities ensured a steady stream of women willing to work in the brothels, and with the growth of factories, thousands of men or johns to purchase their services. Whereas in France and many other nations, uh, there was a campaign to regulate brothels, in America, there was a determined campaign to get rid of them. Traditional Christian values of purity, abstinence until marriage, and marriage fidelity were strong currents in society, as was concern for public hygiene and venereal disease which could be spread by airing husbands uh, to their innocent wives and children. The media also circulated salacious stories about respectable young white women being doped, raped, and trapped into uh, debt peonage. Progressives argued that local corrupt police forces were ineffective in fighting this new scourge. In 1910, Congress passed the White Slave Traffic or Man Act, criminalizing the transportation of young women across state lines for purposes of prostitution. 
the White Slave Act also had racial undertones. Middle-class America was disturbed by the thought that white women could be pimped by black men or serve black clients. In reality, though, many of the women who worked in the brothels were girls imported from Latin America. The black boxing champ, Jack Johnson himself, was prosecuted by the Bureau under the Mann Act for bringing his white girlfriend across state lines. The girl's parents had gone to the Bureau after she left home and claimed that Johnson had kidnapped her. Johnson eventually fled the country but was arrested when he returned. With the war on white slavery, the Bureau established offices in most American cities employing not only special agents but hundreds of informants. They also initiated the creation of a card index of all known prostitutes, establishing a precedent for later methods of mass surveillance and collection. These forces of immigration, the automobile, and prostitution fueled the need for increased federal law enforcement as the Bureau's budget grew from 329000 in 1911 to a little over $2 million by 1920. Another powerful force also joined the Bureau in these years, J. Edgar Hoover. It's hard in many ways to separate the history of the FBI and that of its fifth director. The Bureau, and by extension the country, would also be incredibly shaped by this one man. I'm not going to dive too much into his background in this episode, as I will be examining him in our next episode. For many of the actors and institutions that we have examined so far, the Cold War started in 1947, or maybe 1945, some even in 1943. For J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau, the war began in late 1917, with the outbreak of World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution. When World War I broke out in 1917, the Bureau was ill-prepared to take on the duties of an intelligence agency. Many of its agents were devoted to fighting prostitution and only worked part-time, and it was amateurish. The Bureau had no intelligence experience of its own, and the Secret Service took point on domestic intelligence during the war. The Secret Service had been successful in the Spanish-American War in dealing with Spanish intelligence 16 years earlier. The German intelligence service was a much more capable opponent, though. Over the course of the 20th century, the Secret Service would see its budget erode, and a bitter rivalry would develop between the two as the FBI fought to become the premier intelligence agency. After the attack on Black Tom Island in New York, where ammunition destined for Russia exploded because of German sabotage, the nation was gripped by fear of German secret agents. Seven people had died because of the attack. In Manhattan, thousands of windows had been shattered by the shockwaves of the explosion, and the Statue of Liberty had some minor damage as a result. Politicians and government agencies were under immense pressure to arrest foreigners to prevent another attack. President Woodrow Wilson only added to this environment of fear as he told the nation that spies and conspirators were amongst us and that those citizens which opposed the war were, in effect, enemy combatants. Congress authorized the Justice Department to conduct other such investigations as requested by the Department of State. The Bureau was given an additional $100,000 and began the task of compiling a list of some 480,000 enemy aliens aged 14 and residents in the United States. Moreover, Wilson gave the Justice Department the authority to arrest and imprison any foreigner without trial they deemed disloyal. Congress also passed the Espionage Act, which made possession of information that could harm America or anyone who spoke or printed disloyal ideas punishable by death or imprisonment. Hence, the Bureau launched its first nationwide domestic surveillance program, rounding up radicals, wiretapping conversations, and opening mail. 1,055 people were arrested under the Espionage Act. Not one spy was convicted. Most were political dissidents who spoke out against the war. Socialists and pacifists were especially hard hit. 
Eugene Debs, the head of the American Socialist Party, himself was arrested. The Germans had set up an extensive operation in North America, operating out of Canada, Mexico, and the United States itself. They had infiltrated German-American communities, Irish nationalist groups, as well as Hindu nationalists for informants and agents. They attempted to infiltrate Washington and Wall Street. They gained control of newspapers such as the Evening Mail and attempted to buy the Washington Post and the Sun. The sinking of Lusitania, though, also sank the German efforts at propaganda in the United States to keep America out of the war. Hence, the Germans changed tactics to attack industries in the United States that were helping the Allied war effort through sabotage. Nevertheless, the hunt for spies became a wild witch hunt. The Bureau, the Army, Navy, State Department, Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, and big city police forces all competed to capture enemy spies. The Bureau conducted two major raids during the, the war. The first was a nationwide attack on the Industrial Workers of the World, or IWW, a left-wing labor movement whose political rhetoric, which, was, which questioned the war, was a crime under the Espionage Act. The New York Times had falsely alleged that they were agents of Germany. With over 100,000 members, the Bureau, with the assistance of local law enforcement, kicked down the doors of IWW offices, homes, and union halls in 24 cities across the country, seizing tons of documents and arresting hundreds of suspects. Three mass trials led to 165 convictions, with prison sentences that ran as long as 20 years. Politicians and the public applauded the arrest. Working from this success, the Bureau attempted a nationwide crackdown on draft dodgers in the summer of 1918. Thirty-five special agents, backed roughly by 2,000 American Protective League members, a little over 2,000 soldiers and sailors, and backed by 200 local policemen, they spread out over the streets of greater New York City and New Jersey. The American Protective League was a short-lived organization that was started in 1917 by private citizens who assisted the government in fighting against German propaganda and spies. It was disbanded by the Justice Department in 1919. In all, they arrested some 50 to 65,000 suspects, seizing them off sidewalks, hauling them out of bars, restaurants, and hotels, locking them in local jails and, nation and national armories. In all, some 1,500 were draft dodgers and deserters. The clear majority were innocent men who had been arrested and imprisoned without cause. Naturally, this resulted in a political firestorm as both the Attorney General and the Director of the Bureau were forced to resign. Like much in American history, this incident was quickly forgotten with the rise of the Red Scare, which gripped the nation in the closing weeks of 1918. The First World War had very little effect on the Bureau, both because of budgetary reasons and because the increased level of investigations was believed to be temporary as the number of agents grew very little from 570 in 1917 630 in 1919. Of the more than 2,000 convictions obtained under the Espionage and Sedition Acts, none involved Germans or Austrians or American sympathizers recruited by Central Power Intelligence. In contrast, they were radical activists, socialists, German Lutheran ministers, and others critical of the war or supporters of Irish independence. In many ways, the first Red Scare was a combination of the progressive movement which had brought the Bureau into existence. Progressivism was in many ways a movement built around social reform meant to preempt the rise of socialism in the United States. Many progressives thus saw wartime patriotism as an opportunity to wipe out socialism once and for all. And in other ways, though, the Red Scare was a turning point away from reform into the start of a new, more intolerant era. By 1919, the Bolsheviks had taken most of Russia and were fighting a brutal civil war. 
In Germany, the Spartacists, another communist group, were attempting to take Berlin, and the Bolsheviks encouraged many other communist parties to revolt around the world. Wilson declared that the Bolsheviks were paid agents of the Germans and sent some 14,000 American troops to fight against the Bolsheviks in Russia. The Soviets had also formed the Comintern, an international association of different communist parties from around the world that sought to foment re- global revolution. Congress agreed with the president that communism was a threat and started holding hearings in 1919. Meanwhile, the economy was tanking because of the war ending. Some 9 million Americans were out of work. Inflation had skyrocketed, and the cost of living had doubled since the start of the war. To put that into a perspective, imagine, if you, if you will, the price of everything doubled in two years, food, gas, and all your essentials. Because of this, 4 million people went out on strike demanding higher pay. A wave of strikes swept the nation. Coal miners went out on strike, as did steel workers. There was a general strike in Seattle, and the Boston police walked off the job and strike. There were race riots, and the anarchists began a bombing campaign that we spoke about in episode two. Although anarchism and communism are two different ideologies, the general public and the bureau saw them as a common enemy devoid of nuanced differences. One of the targets of attack was Attorney General Palmer himself when a young man blew himself up on Palmer's front door. Palmer and the Bureau were sure that the Soviets were behind the attacks, going so far as to ransack the newly established Soviet diplomatic offices in Manhattan. Despite seizing hundreds of documents, no connection was made between the Soviets and the bombings. Nevertheless, the Justice Department was convinced that the bombing and the strikes were the work of the Bolsheviks back in Moscow, attempting to spread anarchy and revolution to the United States. Palmer went before Congress asking for additional money and laws to go after the radicals and communists. Some Galientists were broken up and arrested with its members exiled under the new Anarchist Exclusion Act. J. Edgar Hoover was assigned the task of destroying the communist threat. Hoover's radical division had 61 agents and 35 undercover agents. He quickly established links with Army and Navy Intelligence, the Secret Service, State Department, and Immigration Services, for additional resources and intelligence. He hired private detectives and political vigilantes as well. Hoover, as the head of the Justice Department's radical division, could call for the arrest of almost anyone. He began organizing a nationwide campaign against the enemies of the state. It's important to remember at this point that he was only 24. He created an enemies list which included both Americans and foreigners. You could be on the list for any number of reasons, from attending a lecture or rally to subscribing to the wrong newspaper. Within months of taking over the project, he collected files on more than 60,000 people. Hoover worked closely with the Immigration Department, which had about 13 million immigrants on file, or about one in eight Americans. Hoover believed that among those, these immigrants were the shock troops of the Bolshevik Revolution. The Anarchist Exclusion Act gave them the authority to deport foreigners with only a summary hearing Without indictment or convictions, Hoover began by expelling two high-profile foreigners, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, both of whom were already in jail for advocating against the war. Goldman had preached anarchy, atheism, free love, and birth control. Berkman, her ex-boyfriend, had tried to assassinate a famous steel businessman, Henry Frick. Uh, Berkman didn't fight the deportation, but Goldman asserted that she was an American citizen by marriage but she was deported in the end. Hoover also sent his agents to infiltrate two of America's most left-wing institutions, the Socialist Party and the Union of Russian Workers. 
The Union of Russian Workers were, suppo- su- were suspect because Russia was the home of the Soviet Union. The American Socialist Party had been a viable political party for years at this point, running candidates in both local and national elections since the late 19th century. But with the arrest of Debs, its leadership was fractured. Their most radical members, led by John Reed, a Soviet agent, wanted to take the party in a more radical and violent direction. In 1919, Reed and these other radical socialists and many members of the Russian Workers' Union formed the American Communist Party. Ironically, at the party's birth in Chicago, the Bureau had five undercover agents at the meeting. At this meeting, members called for a nationwide strikes, a workers' revolution, and the creation of the Soviet States of America. Hoover feared that the nation faced an uprising like none before seen in American history, possibly even a second American Civil War. He concluded that this movement was supported by Moscow. Soviet archives, which opened briefly after the Cold War, have confirmed that Hoover was correct in this assertion. The Comintern was funding the American Communist Party with smuggled gold and diamonds. How much money they received from the Soviets during this period, we don't know. Moscow also sent a communique calling on them to incite strikes across the country, and as we saw, there was a a wave of strikes throughout the United States. Were they the result of Soviet agitation? Probably not, but it does give insight into Hoover's perspective during the crisis. With millions of workers out on strike, the nation's steel executives called on the Army, police, the Pinkerton Company, and local militias to crush the workers. In cities across the country, martial law was declared. On Fifth Avenue in New York, mounted police clubbed Russian demonstrators during a pro-Soviet march. President Wilson at this point had ceased to govern as he had fallen ill from a stroke, which had been kept secret from the public. Attorney General Palmer was an ambitious man and saw the crisis as an opportunity to build his reputation with the general public and a a future run for the presidency. Nevertheless, Palmer was under immense pressure from Congress to do something as the situation still seemed to be spiraling out of control despite the, the deportations. On November the 7th, Hoover launched a mass raid against the Union of Russian Workers. With the help of the local New York Police Department, they raided their headquarters in New York, arresting some 200 people in all, beating some with blackjacks and crowbars, cracking skulls and breaking bones. The office was thoroughly destroyed. The NYPD executed 71 search warrants across the city that day. Similar scenarios played out in Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. The publicity from the raids was huge. Palmer was declared a national hero, and the buzz around his run for the presidency started to grow. He quickly declared that the raids had saved the nation from a communist revolution. The real story was very different, though, as the Bureau had arrested far more people than they had warrants for. For 1,182 people had been arrested across eight states. In the days to come, only 199 were eligible to be deported, which left 1,000 suspects in limbo. Some disappeared into city and county jails for months. Many, unfortunately, suffered beatings and torture by Bureau agents and local police. Despite these oversights, Hoover was preparing for a far larger crackdown. He wanted to arrest any American or foreigner associated with the Communist Party and deport them under the Anarchist Exclusion Act. Hoover had a list of 2,280 suspect communists across the country and 3,000 arrest warrants. January 2, 1920 was the biggest mass arrest made in American history, or what became known as the Palmer Raids, even though he neither organized nor directed them. Hoover did. The Bureau broke into political meetings, private homes, social clubs, dance halls, restaurants, and bars across America. 
the Bureau took some 2,858 prisoners. In addition, hundreds if not thousands were arrested without warrants. In all, between six to 10,000 people were arrested in the raids. No one will ever know precisely how many were arrested and imprisoned, how many questioned and released. No official counting was ever took. Moscow directed the Communist Party to unite with the Socialist Party to form a solid political front, but American communists explained to Moscow that they were in a lose-lose situation. If they stayed underground, the movement would eat wither and die. If they tried to operate openly, the government would kill them. The raids crippled the Communist Party. The party's leadership survived by only going underground, taking false names, communicating in code, living in hiding. Almost all the leaders of the Communist Party did some jail time. Few went more than a few months without being arrested in a jail cell or in a courthouse. The party shrank to some 6,000 members, few of whom had been born in America or spoke English. By the 1920s, it was virtually non-existent as a political force in the United States. Meanwhile, Congress seriously debated the sedition status and the extension of the law to peacetime, which would allow the government to imprison Americans for politically charged speech. The House uh, barred the sitting of its lone socialist member, and the New York uh, Assembly expelled its five elected socialist assemblymen. Public acclaim for Palmer poured in, and politicians across the country pronounced him a clear choice for the next president of the United States. Hoover now, too, became a household name. He cultivated reporters and kept a scrapbook with newspaper clippings. Nevertheless, there was a rising backlash to the raids. The chief federal prosecutor, Francis Kane from Philadelphia, resigned in an open letter to the president. The chief federal immigration officer in Seattle reported to Washington, D.C. that innocent people had been arrested. Many began to ask, if World War I had been fought to keep the world safe for democracy, democracy seemed unsafe in America. The papers that had been publishing salacious false stories of German spies were now publishing salacious and false stories about communists. Boston, a writ of habeas corpus, was filed against the government on behalf of prisoners being held on Deer Island. Under U.S. law, the government needed to provide a reason for their imprisonment. The case didn't go well. Felix Frankfurter, the future Supreme Court justice, represented the prisoners. The Bureau had clearly overstepped its authority. In the final ruling, the judge declared the Bureau's conduct was lawless and unconstitutional. He declared that the government had created a spy system that destroyed trust and confidence and propagated hate. Louis Post, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, threw out more than 1,000 of the remaining deportation cases and reviewed an additional 1,400 where he found three out of the four cases the Bureau had violated the law. He also dismissed cases where prisoners had been denied legal counsel or those cases where evidence had been seized illegally. Hoover mounted a furious counterattack and began surveillance of his political opponents, especially Post and Frankfurter. Congress also began an in inquiry into Post's actions. Palmer also demanded to see the president. This led to the first cabinet meeting in months. Wilson, a dying man, couldn't move without help. His thoughts were fleeting, and his words were halting. The president was only vaguely aware of what was, had been happening the last eight months. Shortly after the meeting began, Palmer tried to take over the meeting. Right in the face mad, Palmer argued that the nation faced the threat of a revolution and that Post had to be fired. Wilson, in his weakened state, told Palmer not to see red, but Palmer heard the president's words as, go ahead, meaning to cleanse the nation of communists. On April the 29th, Palmer announced that the nation would face a wave of terrorist attacks on May the 1st against American leaders and landmarks, warning governments and corporate executives that they were targets for assassination. 
Bureau agents, National Guards, and the police departments were put on guard across the country, concentrating on New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and New Orleans, watching railroad stations, harbors, Wall Street, and the homes of the most powerful men in America. May Day 1920 came and went without the supposed attacks. The press mocked Palmer, and the Congress and the public lost faith in his judgment. Congress quickly cut the budget for the Bureau by one-third. When Post appeared before Congress, he made mincemeat of the charges of political misconduct made against him by Hoover and Palmer. After 10 hours of questioning, they decided not to impeach him or to condemn his actions. Instead, they called Palmer to speak before Congress himself. Moreover, the nation's top law schools issued a document called the Report to the American People, accusing Palmer and Hoover of torture and illegal imprisonment. It said that they had launched an assault against the Bill of Rights. When Palmer and Hoover appeared before Congress on June the 1st, Palmer described the world as on fire and the United States under attack from communism. He pointed to the bombings of his own house as proof that even his life was in danger. Louis Post and other lawmakers, he argued, were no better than the communists they protected. Hoover minimized his role in the raids, skirting responsibility. Palmer's popularity plummeted, and at the Democratic Party convention in 1920, he only gathered 44 ballots for his bid for the presidency, and he had to withdraw. His political life was over. Meanwhile, Hoover reformed his department from the Radical Division to the General Intelligence Division. Hoover established links with the police chiefs, corporate executives, telephone and telegraph companies, and continued to maintain surveillance on thousands of supposed communists across the country. The Red Scare ended with a, ba- a bang, though. On September the 16th, a horse-drawn wagon exploded on Wall Street. The bomb killed 38 people and injured roughly 400. It was the largest terrorist attack in American history until the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. The Bureau swore to bring the bombers to justice, but never did. By 1922, the plan for the Bureau to, to investigate radicals and communists and then to work with local and state police to make arrests and then charge the suspects under state laws as the Bureau lacked federal anti-radical laws from which to prosecute radicals and communists for federal crimes. The Bureau also focused on more radical movements in the African-American community. Many black nationalist movements had sprung to life as a result of the poor treatment black veterans received upon their return from World War I. Unconvinced that racial prejudice had fueled the growth of these more radical movements, the Bureau was convinced that communism was behind the growth of these organizations. Even progressive movements and individuals like the NAACP, W.D. Du Bois, and Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association were investigated, though they uncovered no evidence of espionage or seditious activities. Unable to secure Garvey's deportation, he was a resident alien, Bureau officials in 1923 secured his conviction for mail fraud. During this period, though, the Bureau did hire its first African-American, James W. Jones, a World War I veteran. He investigated the Garveyites until his resignation from the Bureau in 1923. Bureau also focused on white militancy and undermining its traditional foe, the Ku Klux Klan, responding to Louisiana Governor John Parker's request for federal assistance as the state authorities struggled to curb the power of the Klan. Having failed in the late 1860s to achieve the conviction of Klan leaders, the Bureau convicted Klan leader Edward Clark for violating the Mann Act. Meanwhile, the new Harding administration wanted reprochement with the Soviets as well and sent famine relief to the Soviet Union in 1921. 
The Bureau fought back against recognizing the Soviet Union by spying on politicians who advocated for normalizing relations with the Soviet Union, breaking into the era offices and homes, reading their mail, and tapping their phone lines. The Bureau also supplied intelligence information to their political allies in Washington and financed anti-communist organizations. The Bureau feared correctly that Soviet recognition would bring Soviet embassies and hence Soviet spies to the United States. By 1923, though, the chickens had come home to roost for the Harding administration, which is one of the most corrupt in American history. Even the attorney general himself, Harry Daugherty, was notoriously corrupt. He is estimated to have taken 40000 in bribes. The White House and Congress themselves were speakeasies with politicians openly drinking. You recall this is during Prohibition, so alcohol was against the law. The Secretary of the Interior had taken some 300000 in bribes from oil companies to tap the Navy's oil reserves, and the head of the Veterans Bureau, Charles Forbes, had pocketed millions in kickbacks from contractors. The Bureau faced its own issues as its director, William J. Burns, had been, was removed from office for corruption. He had put many of his friends on the payroll, and when it became public knowledge that, that the Congress had been investigated by the Bureau, the Senate opened congressional investigations into the Bureau's conduct. When Harding died in San Francisco, his successor, Kelvin Coolidge, was the exact opposite known for being an upstanding politician. Dottery was forced to resign and just managed to escape jail time. Harlan Stone, the longtime dean of Columbia Law School, was named the new attorney general. Stone was not a liberal, but he was a strong supporter of civil liberties. Hoover was named temporary director of the Bureau, but given the excesses of the Bureau during the war and the Red Scare, the Attorney General banned the Bureau from political surveillance. Stone told Hoover that he was on probation and that the culture of the Bureau would need to change. The Bureau would only investigate violations of federal law. No more break-ins, no more mass arrests. The Bureau would no longer be a political instrument, nor would it engage intelligence work. It would be a purely law enforcement agency. Stone remained Attorney General for nine months before joining the Supreme Court. Hoover, on the other hand, would remain Director of the Bureau for the next 48 years. Although Hoover promised to reform the Bureau, he never disbanded its intelligence capabilities, nor did he stop spying on communists and those he believed to be enemies of the United States. He continued the infiltration of organizations such as the ACLU or investigating private citizens such as Helen Keller without a warrant. On paper, Hoover abolished the General Intelligence Division. Instead, now, all the documents were kept under his personal control. For the next 50 years, Hoover kept these uh, files under secrecy until his death. Nevertheless, the Bureau had lost a great deal of its legal power with the end of the war and the Red Scare. The Espionage Act was now null and void and without a war, and the Sedition Law now required that the government have proof that defendants did indeed plan to use violence to overthrow the government. Moreover, he couldn't charge communists with communicating with the Soviets under the Logan Act, which outlaws Americans from communicating with hostile powers, because the United States didn't diplomatically recognize the Soviet Union. He did, however, justify his spying on the communists by pointing to the clause that the Bureau was given the power to investigate matters under the Department of Justice and the Department of State. So Hoover claimed that this allowed him to continue his investigations of the Communist Party in the United States as it was a foreign ideology. Over the course of the next decade, he kept the operation small and focused, spying on the communists through paid informers, party defectors, police detectives, and State Department officials. 
During the mid to late 1920s, Hoover and the Bureau laid low. The 1920s saw an era of small government Republicans. He attempted to let the state and local police take the lead in law enforcement and positioned the Bureau as a resource to local law enforcement and as a conduit of national coordination between law, local law enforcement around the nation. He stressed the agency's cost efficiencies and from 1925 to 1932 underspent his budget returning money to the Treasury, winning the admiration of many Republicans. The Bureau actually grew from the period of 1922 to 1936, whereas most government agencies declined. Hoover was a very successful bureaucrat. In the 1920s, Hoover also reformed the Bureau's hiring and personnel standards. He fired the corrupt and the incompetent. He banned drinking on the job. He instituted uniform crime reports and built a training academy. Agents had to meet strict dress and personal conduct standards. Their performance was based on clearly defined rules, and each agent was issued a manual of regulations, which outlined the standards governing the conduct of investigations. He also established the Special Inspection Division to evaluate whether agents complied with these rules and met their responsibilities efficiently. Derelict agents were issued letters of reprimand. Continued deficiencies resulted in dismissal. These reforms did help to change the image of the Bureau in line with the politics of the era of efficiency, rationality, moral character, and limited government. An example of this was the new fingerprint division, which provided state and local police an essential service, which relied on the latest technology. Hence, geographically dispersed police department agencies benefited. In 1930, he also helped state and local law enforcement by releasing the Annual Summary of Crime Statistics, which quantified national crime statistics and proved to be useful to local and state police officials while indirectly justifying the Bureau's existence through the coordination of law enforcement and superior professionalism. To gain more social capital, Hoover also created the Obscene File, which was a central repository of explicit and pornographic material from around the country, which was used in the prosecution and conviction of perverts and child pedophiles. Oddly enough, despite the Bureau's focus on law enforcement, it was not formally involved in the enforcement of the Volstead Act or Prohibition. Growing out of the same progressive movement as the women's suffrage and the the fight against prostitution, the Prohibition movement had amended the Constitution to outlaw alcohol, which was seen as a social scourge at the time. A special prohibition bureau within the Treasury Department had been established to enforce prohibition. The law was extremely unpopular, though, especially along the East Coast and in the big cities. College students and owners of speakeasies contributed to a culture of lawlessness, creating lucrative opportunities for bootleggers and gangs, which quickly evolved into large organized crime syndicates on a scale never before seen in America. I want to take a quick moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and those of you who have made one-time contributions over the past year. If you enjoy the episodes about intelligence, espionage, and spying like this episode, or episodes about the KGB, CIA, NSA, and British intelligence, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level, or for whatever amount you think is appropriate. Episodes take about 10 to 15 hours to create on average and can cost between $10 to $50 or more in books and references to make the show which doesn't include the cost to host the podcast or maintain the website. So again, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter if you can by making a contribution to the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you're tired of me interrupting the narrative to beg you for money, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter so you can access our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. 
The election of Roosevelt in 1932 almost resulted in Hoover's dismissal. A number of Southern senators wanted him gone after his crackdown on the Klan. However, they agreed to allow him to stay on at a high price. He had to agree to let go of about 100 Republican agents and hire 100 Southern Democrats in their place. Roosevelt's first choice for Attorney General, Senator Thomas Walsh, was no fan either. Walsh had been a target of Hoover's investigations. The chances of Hoover keeping his job were slim, but at 72, Walsh died of a heart attack on, a, on his train to Washington. The new Attorney General, Homer Cummings, decided to keep Hoover. The rise of powerful organized crime across the country led to an explosion of corruption as police, judges, and politicians were bribed or actively participated in the production, sale, and distribution of alcohol. Moreover, as these crime syndicates fought for market share, hundreds died in the streets. They were heavily armed with the latest weapons like Thompson submachine guns and BARs. Along with uh, this wave of crime came the Great Depression starting in 1929 as millions of Americans lost their jobs and struggled to make a living. Bank robberies and kidnappings skyrocketing, adding to the general climate of lawlessness. The police were outnumbered and lacked the resources in terms of men, money, and firepower to take on these regional crime syndicates, bank robbers, and professional criminals, as alarmed citizens demanded a more effective response. As a result, between 1932 and 1936, Bureau's appropriations doubled from $2.9 million to $5 million and almost doubled its agents from 821 to 1,580. Bureau agents were no longer obscure government employees but the revered G-men. Their image of well-dressed professionalism and efficiency so painstakingly built up by Hoover contrasted with the inefficient and often corrupt police. Two dramatic events helped to publicize this image. The first, the Charles Lindbergh kidnapping, and the second, the emergence of violent criminal outlaws who received celebrity status like John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Machine Gun Kelly, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, and many others. For those who may not remember, Charles Lindbergh had become a national hero for making the first transatlantic flight in 1927. On March the 1st, 1932, unemployed carpenter, Bruno Richard Humpton kidnapped Lindbergh's son. The family paid the ransom, but the boy was murdered anyways. In 1932, kidnapping was not a federal crime. Nonetheless, President Hoover authorized federal agencies to cooperate with the New Jersey police. Months passed without progress, and in October 1933, President FDR placed the Bureau in charge of the investigation. Through the technology of signature recognition and some lucky breaks, the Bureau arrested Humpton uh, for kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby, highlighting the Bureau's professionalism, scientific expertise, and efficiency. John Dillinger seemed almost unstoppable to local police. Between May 1933 and July 1934, he robbed 10 banks in five states. On one occasion, he even robbed a police station of guns and ammo, and on another occasion, he even escaped from jail with a soap bar carved like a gun after having been photographed earlier. Bank robberies, like kidnapping, was not a federal crime at the time. Nevertheless, to many at the time, he confirmed the inadequacy, if not the incompetence, of the local and state police. The Bureau uh, dubbed Dillinger public enemy number one. Using the Dyer Act, the Bureau attempted to arrest him for driving stolen cars across state lines. Dillinger was eventually hunted down and gunned down outside of a movie theater in a dramatic fashion. Hoover moved to build on these successes by working with Hollywood to release a series of pro-FBI movies starting in the mid-1930s. 
such as G-Men and Public Enemy. In the ensuing years, the FBI worked closely with Hollywood to convey a carefully crafted image of the FBI as a highly disciplined, ethical, and professional organization. The image was also widely disseminated in other media of the period, like in popular magazines, like popular science, cartoon strips like The War on Crime, and Secret Agent X-9, and radio shows like Crime Busters and Gang Busters. Even Hoover himself wrote articles for magazines and wrote a book, Persons in Hiding, 1938. By the mid-1930s, the FBI was a very popular agency, and President Roosevelt demanded Congress enact the 12-point crime program that Attorney General Homer Cummings had proposed to increase the power of the federal government to deal with kidnapping, extortion, and bank robberies. The FBI did have its detractors, though, such as the Chicago Tribune, who accused Hoover of establishing a super Gestapo. In reality, though, the FBI was a relatively small organization with only one agent per 32,000 American citizens. The KGB had one agent per every 5,830 people. The Gestapo, one per 2,000, and the East German Strazi, one per 175. Even at the height of the Cold War, the FBI never approached those numbers. The criticism stuck, though, having been borne out of the progressive era and the Roosevelt presidencies, Liberals were starting to question the ethics of the FBI as a force for good in American society. On the flip side, the FBI was slowly but surely becoming popular with the American right. Hoover also invested in technology during the 1930s. He opened the FBI's first laboratory with capabilities in fiber analysis, paint type detection, ballistics, and chemical analysis of bloodstains. The Dillinger and Lindbergh cases provided the catalyst for radical changes in federal policy and Attorney General Cummings proposed to Congress a 12-point crime program to expand the powers of the federal law enforcement. Many Americans now saw crime not as a local matter, but a national issue that needed to be addressed on a national scale. Congress, however, did not see it in that way, and only six of Cummings' points were passed into law. Still, kidnapping became a federal crime, as did bank robberies. It became a federal crime for witnesses or felons to cross state lines, and it became a federal crime to kill a federal agent. Moreover, Congress gave the Bureau the power to carry firearms, executive, execute warrants, and make arrests. Consistent with these new responsibilities, it was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigations, or FBI. With the growth of the government under the New Deal, the Second World War, and the beginning of the Cold War, the power and authority of the FBI would grow exponentially. Between 1936 and 1952, FBI appropriations increased by more than 1,800% from $5 million to a little over $90 million, from 609 agents and 971 support staff to 6,451 agents and 8,206 support staff. Nevertheless, the FBI would face new and more challenging threats in the late 1930s and 1940s. These were threats from espionage and outside powers like Germany, Japan, and the Soviet Union. Despite the Communist Party's near extinction in the 1920s and its internal feuds, the Great Depression breathed new life into the movement. With some 8 million people out of work and a quarter of the nation's factories closed, the Communist Party began to build significant support among labor unions and the unemployed. Between 1930 and 1936, membership in the party quadrupled to 30,000. Congress once again held congressional hearings about the threat of communism, and Hoover appeared at hearings urging Congress to outlaw communism and give him the power to finish the job he had started some 10 years ago. 
Nonetheless, Congress gave Hoover no new powers. Many people, even Republicans, believed that communists had a constitutional right to civil liberties. In 1935, FBI agents uncovered a German spy ring that had been operating in New York since 1927. German intelligence had recruited 18 pro-Nazi advocates, both Americans and alien residents, to infiltrate defense plants and the U.S. military to obtain information about military technology, as well as to monitor naval traffic in and out of New York Harbor. Hoover knew from American Signals Intelligence that America had been compromised by foreign intelligence services and that the FBI was behind the curve in terms of addressing the threat. Hoover advocated for an immense buildup of the FBI from its current 587 agents to a strength of 5,000 and the power to investigate anyone in the United States. Roosevelt, in the end, didn't give Hoover the power he wanted nor the money, but he did allocate an additional 600,000 for an additional 140 new agents. In 1939, Congress enhanced the powers of the FBI to investigate communists and fascists in the United States who they worried might sympathize with Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. The Hatch Act uh, barred all federal employment to any member of a political party that advocated the overthrow of the U.S. government, primarily aimed at American communists and Nazis. Then in 1940, Congress enacted the Alien Registration Act, or Smith Act, which required all resident aliens to be fingerprinted and forbid them from advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government. In all, some 26 American fascists were prosecuted in 1942. In 1939, the FBI also established a civil rights unit and began working on dismantling the Klan once again. The FBI's goal of anticipating threats led to abandonment of primarily law enforcement role to one that also included intelligence. Spying, sabotage, and terrorism in the the contemporary context need to be anticipated and discovered through surveillance of suspicious individuals with radical political views. Since subversives, spies, and terrorists operate by stealth and a subterfuge, the FBI similarly had to rely on inherently intrusive and illegal methods such as wiretaps, bugs, break-ins, and mail openings. These investigations very often did not result in arrests or prosecutions. They were conducted in secret and intended to gather information. By the late 1930s, it was an open secret that the FBI was listening to private conversations as this led to a new type of omnipresent power for the FBI. The FBI was also able to pursue this course of action because they were shielded from critical public critiques via the secrecy of the Second World War and the Cold War. It was believed that opening the FBI up to public oversight would weaken the FBI and undermine the nation's security. Wiretapping had been outlawed since 1934 by the Communications Act of 1934, which regulated the communications industry and contained a provision explicitly banning the interception and divulgence of communications transmitted by wire. Since its passage focused on actions of corporations and private individuals, the Justice Department concluded that it didn't apply to federal agencies conducting federal investigations. This reasoning was, however, rejected by the Supreme Court in 1937 and again in 1939. Despite these decisions by the court, Hoover told his agents to continue with the wiretaps. The FBI wiretapped hundreds of radicals, political and labor union activists and organizations, including the NAACP, the Gandhi Society for Human Rights, the Congress of International Organizations Council, National Maritime Union, United Auto Workers Union, and the United Mine Workers Union. Lists of peoples such as Germans, Italians, and communists and their sympathizers were drawn up to be arrested in a national emergency. 
By the end of the 1930s, Hoover tried to expand his authority and that of the FBI's as well. He tried unsuccessfully to take control of the Secret Service and INS, or Immigration and Naturalization Services, which ceased to exist in 2003. Roosevelt turned to the FBI to spy on his domestic critics as well. He was convinced that his political opponents were supported by the Nazis. Hoover encouraged these suspicions by the president as well, telling him that the Germans were laundering money through banks in the United States to fund his political opponents. FDR forwarded Hoover the names of individuals who had publicly protested his foreign policy and who wanted, and he wanted investigated. These reports detailed their associations with suspected fascist and communist groups, along with their political activities. Included in this list were, were senators like Burton Wheeler and Gerald Nye and organizations which opposed the president's agenda, such as the American First Committee, the Liberty Lobby, the Christian Front, the NAACP, the Polish-American Congress, and the Communist Party. The FBI also monitored and reported on both pro-fascist publications and editors and reporters of mainstream conservative newspapers, most notably the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Times, and the New York Daily News. Roosevelt even attempted to pressure Attorney General Biddle to prosecute his critics, saying their publications were seditious. Biddle did bring charges against pro-fascist publications, but he was unable to silence his conservative critics. FDR knew these actions were wrong and violated the civil liberties, but he thought these were extraordinary circumstances. The executive order that FDR signed would continue to be used by the FBI for jurisdiction to wiretap the next 25 years. In those years, the FBI initiated at least 6,769 warrantless wiretaps and 1,806 bugs in the name of national security. It should be noted that these figures are probably not entirely accurate as many wiretaps and bugs went unrecorded. In the end, the FBI had discovered that the vast majority of the money that had supported the president's opponents came from everyday Americans. The American First Movement had over 850,000 members. Roosevelt, however, found this hard to believe that so many people would oppose his policies. The FBI also sought to discredit the president's opponents. The FBI tried to paint Charles Lindbergh, the leader of the American First Movement, as a sexual deviant and claimed that he had visited prostitutes in Butte, Montana in the 1920s. The popular radio preacher and anti-Semite Charles Coughlin was another target of the president's and the FBI. Roosevelt's secret directive did not legalize wiretapping. Attorney General Jackson attempted to minimize the chances of discovery by not keeping any records on FBI wiretaps. Only Hoover himself would keep a record of the tapes in his personal office. This decision made it hard for his successors to monitor the FBI wiretapping practices. At this point, Hoover became a law unto himself. He was in essence the fourth branch of government as his power would only grow with the Cold War. Over the next two decades, Hoover told attorney generals what he wanted them to know. He made it impossible for them to exercise their authority over the FBI. Hoover was operating outside the law, and he knew it. The wiretaps would never stand up in the court of law, but wiretapping worked. It was one of the most powerful tools the FBI had to gather intelligence. Despite Hoover's close relationship with the president, he was resented by the rest of the liberal America and the president's wife. Hoover personally disliked Eleanor Roosevelt and kept a file on her along with a number of other prominent liberal Americans, such as Felix Frankfurter, the Supreme Court Justice. Eleanor and Hoover had quarreled over his investigation of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade of volunteers who had fought in the Spanish Civil War against Franco. 
Eleanor argued that only a few were leftists, where Hoover saw them all as communists. She was also angry to discover that the FBI had been investigating the sex life of her secretary, Edith Helm. Little did she know they were also investigating her sex life and her lesbian pro- proclivities. The FBI was also unhappy with her work on civil rights. During the war, they feared an uprising of African Americans and felt that she was stirring up black resentments. In 1940, the FBI also began the practice of reading the mail of Axis and Soviet embassies, which was soon extended to their consulates in New York and the pro-Axis governments like Spain, Portugal, and Vichy France. In addition, in 1940, the FBI began a program of break-ins either to install bugs or to photograph the records of suspected subversives, individuals, and organizations. Break-ins were well-planned and had to be approved by Hoover himself before being carried out to ensure that FBI agents did not conduct break-ins indiscriminately and recklessly. The targets of break-ins included the Soviet Government Purchasing Commission, the American Youth Congress, the American Peace Mobilization, and the Washington Committee for Democratic Action. While Hoover watched the Germans and Italians closely, he had virtually no idea about magic or the impending attack on Pearl Harbor. America's entry into the war in many ways consigned the FBI to the sidelines. The military and later OSS did much of the fighting and intelligence work overseas. The OSS and Wild Bill Donovan was Hoover's arch enemy and institutional rival. Hoover preserved the FBI's jurisdiction over the domestic United States, but he couldn't stop Donovan from influencing Roosevelt to create a foreign intelligence agency, the OSS. Hoover also hated the OSS because Donovan made common cause with the Soviets, and he suspected correctly that OSS had been infiltrated by the NKVD. Hoover saw the war as only a brief interlude between the continuation of the struggle against communism. The FBI did help to round up 3,846 Germans, Italians, and Japanese aliens, though. They had been identified as suspects beforehand. Hoover ironically opposed FDR's internment of 112 Japanese-American citizens. He did not want people imprisoned merely on the basis of their race. He felt that they should be investigated and, if necessary, jailed if they were unloyal. In all, in the first 19 months after Pearl Harbor, the FBI arrested some 16,062 suspected foreign subversives. But just like after the first Red Scare, some 10,000 were eventually released in the coming months as they were deemed not a threat. As in the 1920s, thousands of innocent people had been arrested. The president did expand the powers of the FBI during the war. Hoover took responsibility for conducting background checks for applicants for government jobs. He also worked with immigration authorities to control America's borders, airports, uh, ports, and railway stations. He was charged with censoring the press and screened the mail, as well as telegrams sent by Western Union. Hoover continued, of course, to wiretap organizations and individuals. The war gave Hoover authority to investigate the political beliefs of Americans, and during this period, thousands of people were added to Hoover's lists, the greatest number of whom were communists. There were fascists, Nazis, and Klansmen on the list as well, anyone really who opposed the American way of life, which in Hoover's mind was white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and Republican. The communists, although he kept tabs on them, were, were out of his reach as long as the Soviets were allies, frustrating him as he saw the Communist Party grow to some 80,000 members. The list of enemies, or the security index, was still kept a secret, though, shared only with the Army and Navy intelligence. He warned people in government correctly that the Soviets were attempting to steal America's technological and military secrets. 
During the war, the FBI grew from 898 agents in 1940 to 4,591 agents by 1943. As mentioned earlier, they kept close tabs on the African-American population fearing a revolt, especially as W.D. Du Bois had come out against the war against Japan in the internment of Japanese Americans, although only a few African-Americans joined him in the, in, to protest the war. The black Muslim leader, Elijah Muhammad, and the Temple of Islam were also arrested because of their pro-Japanese sentiments. In 1943, CORE, or the Congress of Racial Equality, was also investigated for its pacifist beliefs. Also that year, the Detroit race riot, black leader Philip Randolph led a march on Washington Monument. Randolph saw the war as an opportunity to achieve better living conditions for African Americans, but Hoover saw the march as a part of a communist conspiracy. Hoover even attempted to prosecute members of the black press, but the Justice Department wouldn't go along with the plan. Liberals were also angry with Hoover's lack of diversity in the FBI. Between 1919 and 1956, only 15 African Americans and a handful of Hispanic agents were hired to the Bureau. Although, in all fairness, Hoover promoted his own chauffeurs to special agent. They were not given the same training as white agents, and it might have been done to protect them from the draft, but they were armed, and they did eventually. he did evidently trust them with his protection. Moreover, for the times, the FBI minority representation was no better or worse than other agencies of the period. Hoover also sent some of his agents to Great Britain to learn from the British counterintelligence and espionage, teaching them the tracking and detection of spies, the protection of manufacturing plants and shipping ports, hiding of cameras, placement of undercover agents, and methods around compiling lists of enemies and opening mail undetected. The spread of communism remained Hoover's first concern. In April 1941, British intelligence warned the Americans about Tyler Kent, a Princeton dropout who had worked for six years as a clerk at the American embassies in Moscow and London. The British suspected him of espionage and broke into his apartment and discovered that he was selling diplomatic cables to the Soviets. Among these documents, they discovered that a Soviet agent, Gayek Belvijik of Mecca, was operating in New York. The FBI arrested him, and he was released on $25,000 bail. Ten weeks later, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, and the State Department ordered the charges dropped. Little did they know that Ovimika was the top NKVD agent in the United States and the chief Soviet spy in the U.S. since 1933. He had knowledge of all the Soviet safe houses, recruits, and couriers throughout the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Had they interrogated him or discovered who he was, it would have been a huge windfall in crippling Soviet intelligence in the U.S. and changing the course of the Cold War. In 1944, the FBI stumbled across the Soviet illegal spies by accident. If you recall from episode 16, Soviet illegals were Soviet citizens who trained to appear as Westerners and infiltrate American government or technological facilities after establishing themselves and living in the U.S. under false identity for decades. The suspect was a middle-aged man who had worked at a record company selling communist songs. After breaking into his house, they discovered that he had scientific documents about heavy water and technical details about the Manhattan Project. The man ha had probably moved to the U.S. in the 1920s. 1943, through wiretaps of the Communist Party headquarters, the FBI discovered that the Communist Party chief, Earl Broder, and communist activist Steve Nelson were in communication with Vasily Zublin, uh, a Soviet embassy official we learned later was a KGB station chief. 
Zublin gave Nelson a large sum of money to help place communist agents in secret war production facilities so as to steal technology and transmit it back to the Soviet Union. The FBI focused its investigation on the American Communist Party over the next two years, monitoring Nelson and who he came in contact with, and subsequently breaking into their homes and photographing their papers. This investigation, despite the resources invested, did not lead to a single act of Soviet espionage being uncovered. So what went wrong? We know in retrospect that the Soviets were successful in stealing secrets, for the Soviets and the American communists were aware that the FBI was monitoring them. They suspected that their phones might be tapped and deployed certain methods to avoid surveillance when necessary. Ours were used to arrange secret meetings. Meetings were canceled any time they suspected that they were monitored. They never used their real names or those of their agents in spoken code. They destroyed all their notes after transmitting coded messages, rendering break-ins useless. Moreover, they focused on the wrong communists. The FBI focused on the prominent leadership of the American Communist Party, whereas most communists who had been recruited by the KGB had served their, severed their public links with the party in an attempt to blend in, or they were low-level party members and therefore were not discovered as they didn't attend leadership meetings. This failing of the FBI was kept secret from the public until the 1990s. By 1945, the FBI had emerged as the president's intelligence arm. The FBI's role during the war might have been relatively small, but the alliance with the presidents had emboldened the FBI officials to collect and then maintain massive amounts of non-criminal but derogatory personal and political data on individuals. The FBI had no rivals on the domestic front, and even the advocates of states' rights had been muted as a result of the war. The end of the war also brought the disbanding of the OSS and the firing of Bill Donovan, Hoover's arch enemy. The military, too, with budget cuts, would face cutbacks and a loss of their influence. Nevertheless, the FBI, with the emergency of the Cold War, was positioned in the ascent. Hoover now commanded 4,886 special agents backed by 8,305 staffers with a budget three times his 1940 budget, and he had detected, dedicated 80% of that force to battle with communism. He had already forged an alliance with British intelligence and deployed FBI agents to Moscow, Stockholm, Madrid, Lisbon, Rome, and Paris, investigating possible attacks against the United States. Unlike Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, the Soviet Union was not just an existential threat to the United States. It was also viewed as a spiritual threat as subversive adversaries sought to orchestrate worldwide revolution, not just by military strength, but by exploiting socioeconomic discontent. Thus, the U.S. had to be vigilant of American communists and fellow travelers who sought to steal diplomatic, military, and technological secrets and undermine the social fabric and unity of the United States. These factors fueled the FBI's explosive growth in the post-war years. Hoover believed that given communism's subversive nature, more create, creative and aggressive tactics would be needed to util, be utilized to protect the republic. At times, FBI agents would have to violate the law, privacy rights, and civil liberties, and with secret executive directives, the FBI was granted the broad authority to use illegal investigative techniques to anticipate espionage and subversion. The end of World War II also brought with it a new president, Harry Truman. In a short meeting after Roosevelt died, Hoover and Truman met one-on-one. One -on -one. From all recollections, the meeting did not go well. Truman knew nothing about the atomic bomb, the Soviet efforts to steal it, or Hoover's use of war warrantless wiretaps. Truman decided moving forward to keep his distance from Hoover. If Hoover had something to tell the president, he would have to go through Harry Vaughn. Truman believed that Hoover was intent on building his own American Gestapo. 
He wanted to confine the FBI to the United States, and he wanted to cut their budget. Truman did agree to sign off on warrantless wiretaps, though, renewing FDR's illegal executive order. Vaughn and Hoover got along well, though. Hoover tried to win Truman's trust as he had won the trust of FDR by spying on his political opponents, but Truman told him to cut that stuff out. Vaughn told Hoover if the FBI was caught breaking the law, the administration would deny any knowledge of the whole affair, and Vaughn didn't want to know anything about wiretaps, bugs, and break-ins conducted by the FBI. As we saw in episode 39, Hoover did try and have the FBI take over the role of the OSS in the new Cold War, but was rebuffed by Truman, who proceeded to create the new CIA for foreign intelligence. Hoover deeply resented this decision and did everything in his power to weaken and discredit the new CIA. For the rest of his life, the FBI and the CIA would be bitter rivals. He would spy on them and wiretap their phones. He suspected some of them of being communists and for being homosexuals. Things became even more heated when Hoover informed the Truman administration that Dexter White and Alger Hiss were Soviet spies. In hindsight, we know that this was true, but Truman didn't believe Hoover and thought it was unbelievable that two of the administration's leading intellectuals were spies. After this, the president rarely read Hoover's reports, making him even more furious. The president and the director became implacable opponents as they feuded over national security. Hoover came to believe that the president was weak on communism and that he and the U.S. military would have to lead and prepare the American people for the coming struggle with communism. He believed that the Soviets were preparing an attack on the United States and that American communists and their sympathizers were the shock troops of that attack. It's important to note that for the next 27 years, until his death in 1972, Hoover kept a diary, and in that diary he wrote extensively about the Cold War. Hoover, over that span of time, if he was being honest to himself, thought that the United States was losing the Cold War. During World War II and into the early Cold War, the FBI also began an investigation of Hollywood for Soviet sympathizers and communists. This investigation would last until 1956, by which time the FBI would report that Hollywood was free from communism. Through a series of break-ins between 1943 and 1947, the FBI photocopied the membership roles of the Los Angeles branch of the Communist Party. Through this list, it wiretapped and bugged producers, directors, writers, actors, and others. This information was eventually given to the House Committee on American Activities, or HUAC, and when they were called before the committee to testify, many refused to speak using their First Amendment right, did not answer questions, and were held in contempt. The FBI also began to investigate college campus hiring informants and also ran a list of faculty uh, against lists of known communists in their database. The FBI also investigated the Federation of American Scientists, an organization formed to give scientists a public voice in atomic development. This may seem a bit extreme, but you should keep in mind that the KGB had been recruiting long-term agents from university since the 1930s, and the Cambridge Five, who had been recruited as young college students, had been one of their most successful recruitments. Klaus Fawkes and other scientists who worked on the atomic bomb had been spies for the KGB, and Oppenheimer himself had questionable contacts to communists, most notably his wife, who was a committed communist. Most of those who were arrested by the FBI were convicted of violating the Smith Act or advocating the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, not espionage. The reason for this, as we have discussed in past episodes, is that the FBI feared trying individuals under the espionage clause would disclose sources like Viona codes or methods and techniques used to gather data, some of which were illegal. 
The less risky course was to uh, seek indictment under the Smith Act where communist propaganda could be submitted and informants could be used to secure convictions. For instance, the evidence used to convict the Rosenbergs was circumstantial and also relied on witness testimony. Viona data wasn't used and didn't become available to the public until the 1990s. Alger Hiss, who was also fingered via Fiona, was convicted of perjury. Despite strong circumstantial evidence, such as typed copies of the State Department reports from Whitaker Chambers, Chambers had, which Chambers had presented, Hess couldn't explain the origins of these documents beyond accusing Chambers of breaking into his house and stealing them, despite the fact Hess never reported any break-in or robbery. The FBI did have some successes or lucky breaks against the Soviets as well. Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley defections, along with Gazonsko and Ottawa, all provided the FBI with insight into Soviet espionage operations and helped to facilitate the breakup of those networks, which I reviewed in episode 16 about the early KGB, and we have spoken about in other past episodes. Hoover continued to argue with the White House over the threat of the Soviet Union represented. He had requested money to train an additional 600 agents to combat Soviet espionage, but instead Truman eliminated 600 agents. It was the first time since the 1920s that the FBI's budget had been cut. To save money and hurt the CIA and retaliate against the president, Hoover withdrew all the FBI agents from Latin America early, leaving U.S. without any intelligence presence in Latin America. The FBI flatly refused to work with the CIA or the State Department. If the president wanted to play hardball, Hoover would play hardball. Hoover also went to Congress and began to tell people that the president was letting the country down stoking the embers of the Second Red Scare. For the first time since the Depression that fall, 1946, the Republicans swept Congress. Part of the Republican platform had been a strong anti-communist plank. Helping in this cause was the Chamber of Commerce, which had distributed 500,000 copies of the book titled Communist Infiltration of the United States. The HUAC Committee started holding hearings on communism, and Hoover made political allies with Truman's enemies in Congress. Hoover's dark imagination also turned up the pressure of the early Cold War. He sent documents around Washington outlining the danger of the Soviets smuggling an atomic bomb into the United States and then detonating it in a preemptive nuclear attack. He also warned of the prospects of using chemical and biological weapons in a terrorist attack, or even the possibility of a dirty bomb. Hoover, we must admit, was a very prescient in his view of terrorist attacks. Working with HUAC, Hoover supplied the committee with intelligence on what suspects to call before the committee. Hoover and the FBI also established a strong working relationship with a young congressman from California, Richard Nixon. Speaking in front of Congress, Hoover told the American people that the Soviets were bent on world domination and that Soviet spies were infiltrating American society. At this point, many people saw Hoover as an American hero who had brought order to the lawlessness of the 1930s, so many believed him wholeheartedly. Five days later, Truman agreed to loyalty oaths for all American employees and that, and that all five million would have to undergo FBI background checks. He provided a very powerful weapon to the Republicans, and they delivered a hammer blow against the administration. The FBI also charged leading members of the American Communist Party under the Smith Act. The longtime undercover agents who had infiltrated the party decades ago now paid dividends testifying against members of the party. Of the 115 leaders that stood trial, 93 were convicted. Bentley and Chambers both appeared before HUAC. They weren't the best witnesses, but their testimony was the truth. Nixon became a national figure as a result of the Hiss ordeal. 
Truman derided the Red Hunters like Nixon, and he denounced the pursuit of Hess and the secret communists of the New Deal. But Truman never once criticized Hoover in public. It was a dangerous moment in American history. Hoover no longer took orders from the attorney general or the president. He had taken it upon himself, an unelected figure and probably the most powerful bureaucrat in American history, to defend the nation. Secretary of Defense Forrestal recommended to Truman that they make Hoover a secret police czar of the nation, but Truman pushed back, saying this was contrary to the nation's democratic traditions. Hoover now began to take more actions in secret. He drew up plans for a huge crackdown in case of a national emergency, with mass detention of political prisoners in military camps across the country, with the suspension of habeas corpus. Congress secretly funded the construction of six such camps during the 1950s, but no Cold War president ever considered mass incarceration. Hoover assumed that Dewey would win the presidency in 1948 election, making him attorney general, or at the very least granting the FBI more powers. When Hoover heard the news that Dewey had lost, he was so distraught that he did not return to work for two weeks. In conclusion, the FBI from 1908 to 1950 had grown from a relatively obscure department of the government with a mere 35 agents to its own estate within the government feared even by the president. It wouldn't be accurate to describe the FBI as the American KGB or Gestapo and never achieve the power of those institutions within their respective societies, nor did it ever reach the size of those organizations. On the other hand, it would be wrong to classify the FBI as a purely law enforcement organization. As we've seen, the FBI in its early history violated the law and the Constitution on a regular basis. The FBI's status within American society was a complicated one, and I think can be viewed in one of two ways. In the first view, America clearly had a need for a national law enforcement organization in the 1930s, and the FBI did help to tackle many of the crime issues the nation faced at the time. On the other hand, it came at the cost of civil liberties. Other American institutions like the Supreme Court, Congress, the Free Press, and private organizations like the ACLU barely kept the FBI in check. If it had not been for these other institutions, the FBI probably would have become just like the KGB in the Soviet Union. The story of the early FBI is a story of precaution. Even federal institutions with the best of intentions can be corrupted. From the other perspective, the FBI was really born out of the chaos of the 1920s and 1930s. It was the bureaucratic response to the anarchist bombings of the 1920s and the lawlessness of the 1930s. As we have seen, it often overreacted, but in retrospect, it was responding to real threats. Communist infiltration and sabotage were real threats to the country. The FBI wasn't the federal law enforcement agency the Americans deserved, but it was the one that emerged to fight its enemies. It was a silent guardian and a watchful protector, fighting America's enemies in the shadows. In the end, it's up to you to really interpret what all this means. So what about J. Edgar Hoover? If you're interested in learning more about him and Beria, the head of the KGB, during roughly the same period, tune in for our next episode. This is the first of a few episodes that I will be doing about the FBI during the course of the Cold War. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family, I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in in getting us more listeners, uh, which helps lead to more listeners and more donations, which keeps us bringing you great Cold War content. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. 
want to follow us on social media, check out our, the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Thank you.